Do you ever feel like you've backed the wrong horse in the race of life? Let me just tell you what I mean. Uh, if you switch on your TV or you scroll through your social media, you probably are, you have people that you follow or you hear things on the news or you read things in the newspaper where um, we're bombarded with views about atheism, we're bombarded with views about secularism, we're bombarded with uh, news about the increasing strength of Islam in our nation. Uh, and yet, uh, if you look for good uh, portrayals of Christians on TV, all you find is Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. We're portrayed as self-righteous kind of hypocrites. We're portrayed as weird and weak and foolish. Maybe you've had that experience. Or maybe it's something a little bit closer to home. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. Maybe you're the only Christian in your office or in your road or on the sports team that you play for. And here on a Sunday morning at church or in a small group, you feel pretty encouraged and pretty uh, confident about your faith. But on your own, perhaps if you were put under pressure, you fear that you might crack and that Christianity uh, would be, you'd portray Christianity as, as weak and foolish and a bit weird. Maybe you can identify with this conversation. If you go to work tomorrow morning, uh, I, I've been through this dreaded conversation when I was working in an office or maybe at the school gate and someone says to you, did you have a nice weekend? What did you get up to? And you think, how am I gonna answer this? So you say, oh, a little bit of family time, watched the football, did a bit of shopping. Yeah, it was a good weekend. And then the guilt kind of gnaws at you and you go, and I went to church as well. Anybody ever had that conversation? Yeah, okay, a few nods. What about you at home, ever had that conversation? And your friend's response to you mumbling, oh, I went to church is usually, oh, that's so cool, tell me more, right? No, thanks Ryan for shaking your head. <laughs> no, it's not. Usually there's a kind of awkward silence, there's a shuffling and then they go, oh, is that the time I've got to get to a meeting or I've got to disappear? Or worse, they look at you with disdain and they go, oh no, I knew it, you were one of those God botherers. And we get laughed at and we get sneered at and we get mocked because of our narrow-minded and simplistic outdated beliefs. Now, if you're anything like me, I hate being made to feel foolish. I hate being made to feel weak. No one likes to be laughed or sneered at. Nobody likes to be thought of as an idiot. Nobody wants to be looked down on. Everyone, we prefer to be treated as clever. We prefer to be treated as significant. We prefer to look like we've got it all together. Perhaps you can identify with me this morning, we long for our friends and our family and our work colleagues and the people we know and love to have their eyes opened to the knowledge of God. But the message of Jesus, that message that a Jewish carpenter was from, a, from an obscure backwater part of the Roman Empire, walked around claiming that he was God, but then he was executed on a cross as a common criminal. And then he came back from the dead and he promises that everybody who joins his team can have all of the bad stuff that they've ever done forgiven and they can get to heaven one day. <laughs> when you think about it sometimes, it sounds foolish and weak. Do people really believe this stuff? No wonder we find ourselves on the back foot when we're talking to people. 
And the temptation is, if we're not going to completely throw the towel in and abandon the faith completely, is to say something like, right, well, I've got to dress up the Christian faith to be more presentable to the world around us. I better, better impress them with some strength and some wisdom. So we say, oh, if you come to Jesus, he makes your life a million times better, which is true. But we say, perhaps we say stuff like, you know, um, well, this is where the health and wealth and the prosperity gospel go. You can, you can get righteousness and peace and joy and all the money that you ever wished or all the health that you ever wished. You'll never be sick again. And we try and portray Jesus and dress him up to be more presentable. Or we dilute him down and we say, oh, when the Bible talks about sin, it doesn't really mean that. Or, yeah, do you know what? That's a really hard passage. And I think in today's modern world, it, it, it doesn't apply or it's changed. We can try almost anything to appear more powerful and less stupid. So we come up with cool websites as churches and we have a cool website thanks to Marco. We could meet in an impressive building. We could do seeker sensitive services. We could uh, have hip pastors. We could have killer music. We can have award-winning children's ministry and serve the best coffee. And yet, if we put our faith and our trust in all of those, Paul tells us in verse 17 that we actually empty the cross of its power. Now, in our passage this morning, in verses 18 to 25, which we were just about to read, Paul understands those temptations that we face and those fears that we face that the Christian gospel appears weak and foolish. But he's going to tell us that actually the absolute opposite is true. That far from being weak and foolish, true spiritual power is found in the gospel alone. And as Christians, we should never, ever set aside the cross. We should never set aside the gospel, but instead have full confidence in it. So let's read together from verse 18. If you've got your Bible now, verse 18 to the end of verse 25. This is what God's word says to us. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise and where is the scribe and where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. And it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In our previous passage that we looked at when we were back in 1 Corinthians that we kind of recapped last week in verse, or the week before, in verses 10 to 17, Paul is confronting the Corinthians on the cliques and the factions that have arisen in the church and that dog them. And he's challenged them to change their thinking uh, and he tells them that they've got mistaken because they've suffered from a spiritual amnesia. They've forgotten the power of the gospel and they've replaced it with ways of thinking and acting that are more palatable, that fit with the pagan world around them. They've given in to style over substance. They want 
uh, clever arguments and they want impressive oratory and performance. And so other men and other methods and other messages have infiltrated the church and these kind of siren voices have called to the Corinthians and appeared, uh, appealed to them because they make more sense, they fit better with the culture, they're more sophisticated and they appear more powerful than Paul preaching about a crucified Jewish carpenter. So Paul is going to cure their spiritual amnesia by reminding them of two things. The wisdom of the cross and the power of the cross. And so there are two points this morning. The wisdom of the cross and the power of the cross. And we're going to begin with the wisdom of the cross. In verse 18, he begins with a particularly provocative statement where he says, The message of the cross is, a, is the great divider of, of the human race. So we divide people in all sorts of ways. We divide them as men and women. We divide them as slaves and free. In the, in the Bible, they de, de, uh, define them as Jew and Gentile or black and white. But the Bible says there's two categories of people. There's those that are perishing and those that are being saved. And a person's response to the message of the gospel is an indicator of which category they fall into. So Paul says, yes, the message of the cross, the message of a crucified Messiah will seem really silly to people. We've got to be prepared for that. We shouldn't be surprised by it. You tell people that you believe in Jesus, they will be, uh, they'll think you're a, you're a bit of a nutter. But if they think that, it's usually a bad sign of the trajectory that that person's life is on, both here and in the age to come. But if they think, oh, this sounds interesting, this it's a hopeful message, then it's a good sign that they might be on the path to being rescued. Now, it's a very provocative statement, but he also defends it and he explains it because in verse 19, he then goes on to quote Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, in the original context, Isaiah was speaking to God's people who were under threat of being conquered by the Assyrians, the great superpower from the north of the day. And faced with the full fury of a mighty enemy army, instead of crying out to God, instead of trusting God, instead of praying to him for help, they sent a delegation of people down to Egypt to try and negotiate a kind of uh, an alliance that would hopefully spare them from the dangers of the Assyrians. And so God rebukes his people. He says, you are a bunch of fools and I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll expose the bankruptcy of human wisdom that thinks that you can manage on your own, that you can get by, that you can be saved apart from me. So that's what Paul is addressing here. God is going to expose the bankruptcy of human thinking that think that we're okay on our own and that we can manage without God. So then Paul says, verse 20, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater? And these are all characters in the, Corinth, in the city of Corinth. A wise man was like a philosopher, someone who held out a, a, a well-articulated worldview that tried to make sense of the world around us. Scribe was an expert in the Old Testament law of Moses. And the debater was a, an orator, the master of the media of the day. So a little bit like we might say, well, where is the philosopher? Where is the religious leader? Where is the Instagram influencer? And if you were uh, listening to Paul, you'd say, well, Paul, have you, have you lived in Corinth very long? Have you walked the streets? Because these people are everywhere in the city. People are... are, are philosophizing on the every corner. They're trying to influence people in every street, in every marketplace. They're trying to tell us 
how to find wisdom. There's no shortage of people telling us where wisdom can be found. They're, they're the celebrities, they're the superstars of our day. People who follow Plato and Pythagoras and Aristotle. Eastern mystics, Jewish rabbis, you could find your whole, whoever you wanted to tell you where wisdom was found. And it's the same in our day. So we have TV experts, we have self-help authors, we have podcasters and bloggers and YouTubers all trying to make sense of life for us. But Paul says, where are these people? Now, he's not saying that he's against all human wisdom. He's not saying that there's nothing to be learned from human wisdom. It's not Paul just being a grouchy old man, taking a swipe at education and research and thinking. To be sure, there's much that could be learned by humans and human wisdom. We have all sorts of benefits that come to us through human wisdom. Exploring space, agriculture, industry, medicine, technology and transport are all the result of human wisdom. And yet Paul asks the question, where are they? He, what he means really is, where are they in terms of helping people to find God? Where are they in helping people find salvation from our deepest and darkest problem? One of my favorite authors is Bill Bryson. Anybody ever read a Bill Bryson book? He's a great author. He's, he's a He's an American who's lived in England most of his life, and he's written books on travel and on the English language, and two of his bestsellers, two of my favourites are, he's written one that's called A Short History of Nearly Everything, which is his quest to find out everything that has happened from the Big Bang to modern day civilization. And it's very fascinating. And then he's written another one, the most recent one, it's called The Body. And it's an exploration into the ordinary workings of our human bodies with all of its remarkable abilities. And these two books are incredible. They're really, really interesting. And I, you know, if you want a, a good read, I recommend them. And they, they leave you marveling at the genius of our physical and intellectual and creative makeup as human beings. But for all of his wit and all of his... Uh, awards and all of his book sales, Bill Bryson does not lead you to a knowledge of God when you read him. In fact, he can't even bring himself to say, having looked at all of these things, having looked at these uh, science and the wonders of, of the natural world, he can't even bring himself to acknowledge that there is even the possibility of a God who stands behind it all. So he just talks about luck and fate and chance and good fortune, and that's how we got from nothing to everything and from there to here. And that's Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians. The wisdom of the world has proven itself over and over and over and over again that it can never lead us to a knowledge of God and the salvation that we so desperately need. But that's no accident because God said it through Isaiah. It's his deliberate strategy to thwart human wisdom so that he can bring people to a knowledge of salvation through his own wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. Or as Paul says in verse 21, through the folly of what we preach, through the folly of what we preach, the message of a crucified Messiah. And that is humbling to us as human beings because the only way to know the God who made us, the only way to be right with him, the only way to be with him is through the message that people find stupid and weak. So Paul says worldly wisdom looks good on the outside, but it's empty and hollow on the inside. And the wisdom of the cross looks empty and hollow on the outside, but it's full of wisdom and power on the inside. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And if we try to outsmart God 
and be wiser than him, then the only person that ends up with egg on their face is us. And all the wisdom of ancient philosophers and all the wisdom of modern day experts, they cannot lead us to the wisdom of God in the message of the gospel. It's got to be revealed to us through the person of his son. It's got to be revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And when he does that, we see the power of God. And that's our second point this morning, the power of God. The message of the cross is not what the world is asking for. It never has been. To believe in God, people want power. They want displays of power. They want God to prove himself. They want to assess his claims. They want to evaluate his claims so that they can say yes or no to him. Paul says it's, a, it's, a, it's been an ancient problem. In verse 22, he says, Jews did not just want to believe in Jesus. They wanted miraculous signs. They wanted powerful actions. And so throughout the gospel, in places like Mark 8 and Matthew 12 and John 4, people are constantly saying, show us a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. We want, not because they, they wanted people to be healed, but they wanted to assess his credentials. Can you do it? Show us, prove it. Greeks, on the other hand, or Gentiles in general, they don't look for miraculous signs. They look for powerful words. They wanted logical, rational arguments. They wanted all of their questions answered. They wanted to be able to wrap their heads around what Jesus was saying. And even in our world, it's easy for us to wish that God would move in these ways. Have we ever had a conversation with ourselves or with someone else where we might say, well, yeah, no, I would believe in God if he saved my family. I'd believe in God if he healed me. I'd believe in God if he filled up my bank account. I'd believe in God if he did this for me. Or perhaps we might say it like this. If only there were more signs and wonders in our church, then people would flock in and they'd be saved. Or we might say, if only the Sunday service were better, if only the kids' work was better, then people would be saved. Or we might say this, if only the preaching was less in your face. You know, I don't really want to invite my friends to church because I'm worried if they come, they might hear about obedience and sin, and they might hear about the, what the Bible has to say about homosexuality or men and women, and I'm worried that that's going to put them off. But Paul says, no, we don't want to give people what they want. We need to give them what they need. In verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And to some people, that is a stumbling block. And to others, it's foolishness. But it is truth. It's the truth we need to hold on to. And it will offend modern sensibilities. We don't have to portray it and proclaim it in an offensive way, but it will offend. It's odd. Now, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand that because we see crosses on buildings and in stained glass windows and on jewelry all over the place. But in the first century, the cross was a sign of Roman execution. It was odd. To try and give you an, an idea of what Christ crucified might mean is this. Imagine if someone comes to church uh, next week and we stand them up the front and we introduce them and we say, hi, this is Fred. He is such a godly rapist. It jars, doesn't it? What? How can he be? That's what would have jarred when Paul says, we preach a crucified Messiah. To the Jews, it was a whisker away from blasphemy. Deuteronomy 21 says, cursed is everybody under the tree. So they would have gone, how does God's Messiah, how can he be under God's curse? That's scandalous. 
To the Greeks, they would have gone, no, 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 we're not interested in faith. We want reason. We're not interested in a common criminal who was crucified. We want philosophers. What you're telling me is ridiculous. And yet Paul says to all those who are called by God, whom God has graciously chosen and drawn to himself, whether they be Jew or Greek, whether they be uh, like religious or pagan, Christ crucified is the power of God for salvation. The power of God is not seen primarily in miraculous signs and wonders, but it's seen in Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the agent of creation who incarnated himself into our world, who was born of a virgin and took on flesh and came and lived among us as a carpenter from Nazareth. And he was one who perfectly and completely obeyed the law of God. He loved the Lord, his God, with all of his mind and heart and soul and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. And he laid down his life for others. And he was despised by his own people, the very ones he came to save. He was deserted by his friends. He was betrayed by one closest to him. He was utterly accused, sorry, he was unjustly accused and arrested and tried and beaten, then strung up on a cross by the authorities, nailed through his hands and feet and left to die in excruciating accursed death and he walked free from a tomb on the third day resurrected to new life paul says through this man through his life and death and resurrection god has accomplished something powerful that all of human ability added together could never accomplish the salvation of undeserving sinners like you and me Through Christ's divine humiliation, through his self-sacrifice, through his weakness, his suffering and his death, he has made it possible for people like us to be saved from sin and to experience forgiveness and new life. So we don't need to run over here for power through rituals. We don't need to look over here for power in some experience, religious or otherwise. All that we need is in the message of the cross, Paul says. It's the wisdom and the power of God to save all who will believe. It's the power to change our destiny eternally. It's the power to radically transform our lives. It's the power to completely change every element and part of our personality and identity. It'll change everything about us from what we desire to what we do to what we think. And it's all wrapped up in a message that is foolish and weak to the outsider. But as Paul says in verse 25, it's wiser than men. It's stronger than men. Not that it's the Liverpool in the top of the league and men's strength and wisdom is in the bottom of the league like Brighton. No, no, no. God is batting in a, or playing in a completely different league. David Jackman in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says this, an innocent Messiah hanging on a cross is the direct contradiction of all human wisdom and power. Yet this act of God has achieved what the sum total of human abilities could never achieve. Such wisdom in the end is inscrutable, but its power to save from sin and death and hell is invincible. Love that. Now, three quick implications for us here this morning or watching at home. If you're not a Christian, we pray, I pray that you would know uh, the gospel as true for yourself. We pray that God would open your eyes to the power and wisdom of Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're watching at home and you're not a Christian, we would love to talk to you. Please email us, get contact the church, get hold of one of us, and we would love to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus with you in more detail. 
Now, for us who are Christians, a couple of implications. The first one is this. We must treasure the message of the cross for ourselves and in our own hearts. It's a message that's easily dismissed. It's a message that's easily derided. It's a message that's easily despised. And yet it's a message that we must never be embarrassed of. We mustn't be ashamed of. We mustn't be afraid of it. And it's apparent weakness and foolish because it is the power of God. And so we don't want to have spiritual amnesia like the Corinthians. We want to believe the power in the gospel. It's not a message about the power of God. It is a message that has the power of God in it. So we want to treasure it and we want to protect it as well. If we want our church or us as individuals to be powerful, spiritually powerful and impact the world around us, we've got to follow Paul's example and teaching And embrace the the wisdom and the power of the gospel for our own lives and for our church. We've got to cling to its clarity. We've got to cling to its truthfulness. we, We must protect it from being downgraded and diluted and distorted and diminished. We've got to protect it from being twisted and torn and trampled on. And replaced by something more presentable or palatable. We've got to treasure it and protect it. And then we've got to proclaim it. The third implication, we've got to proclaim it. We've got to tell someone about it. We've got to open our mouths and share the good news of what Jesus has done. And as we do this, we go with confidence, knowing that the very power of God is in those words. And he will manifest his power before our very eyes by drawing people from death to life. Let's pray.